This morning's scripture reading will come from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 31. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Uh, then they kneeled in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took, a staff, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off his robe and put his clothes back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. You know, you never know what you're going to get when you hire a resident minister. Uh, and, and this time I thought we got a guy who's really too serious for us. Um, and he, I mean, he's very, uh, uh, as you talk to him, he's very kind of, you can't really read him, you know. Uh, but he did a great job last Sunday night in, in his pacing and the things that he said and appreciate him. But today he really topped it. Where is he? Where's Aaron? Is he? Is he? Aaron, where are you? Stand up where you are. Did he come to early service and then bail out on the regular service? Is that what he did? Anyway, I can't believe it. But he had the loudest, most obnoxious. He should have been at the, what do they call it, the tacky Christmas party. But he made, he wore it to church instead. But anyway, this morning he was out looking like that. And it was just obnoxious. And I thought, he fits here after all. Him and Paul Wallace would be just get along really well with all that. And, and Georgia, are you, this is Georgia, that's you, right? Okay, so Morgan's got her sister from Sykeston, Missouri over here, and, and I'm, I just saw her a second ago, and I thought, wow, i got to say something. That's Georgia over here, okay? She goes to Murray State in Kentucky, so I think she's just here to visiting, and, and grateful, great to see you. We've got other visitors, and we're grateful that you're here, and hope that you leave going, it was great to be with the Saints at Valley View. I hope you, you feel that way. Um, Let's have a song, and then, and then we'll have a lesson if you'll be turning to Matthew chapter 27, as we do. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Sometimes, and we'll say this, I hear this during the Lord's Supper a lot, you know, help us to put everything in the world out of our minds and focus on, uh, focus on the cross. And I've, I've come to debate whether that's possible or even wise. Can you do that? And do you want to do that? There are weeks when in sermon preparation you have to put things out of your mind and there's an oasis of Bible study, which is my, uh, my bread and butter, what I love to do. And, and I can go into that time and enjoy the text and really come out with something I think is worthwhile. And then there are, are, are weeks where the things going on around me invade and there's no way possible to keep those thoughts out of my head as sermon preparation happens. And so this past week has been particularly a heinous week 
it seems to me. Every day came more bad news from some corner of the earth, from people that I know. I, I think maybe the worst Wednesday morning, or I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, when we found out Stephen, Steve Mayville's gone on hospice, and I'm thinking he was telling me it's going to be months down the road, and now it's going to be, we're talking weeks, and already enough stuff had happened. I had a friend who was fired uh, from, uh, from a job, and he's devastated. I had another friend who's a preacher in Texas, great preacher. I would have, I'd love to have him up here sometime, and, and he goes away to a gospel meeting sometime, and his wife decides she's had enough, and his house is empty when he gets home, and she has uh, a relationship on the side and takes three kids, and that's it. And I'm talking to him, and he's given all these details, and I'm just baffled. How can that happen? I treat my wife really good the rest of the week from that point, I tell you. Not all of these have any Valley View connection. Other people who've been trying. Good, faithful people make good parents trying to become parents. And they just can't. And every day, more stuff like that. And trying to keep that out of the study when you're trying to talk about the cross becomes very difficult. And then it hit me sometime. And then Friday comes the news of Drew, and he's sharing that with me on text. I'm thinking my heart's breaking for this kid, young man, this guy that I know, and I know that it's just tearing him apart. Here's more, and there's more, and there's more, and they're all of different nature. And I'm thinking, what does this message have to do for anybody? I mean, do I just keep that out? Do you say, okay, let's separate the world from what you're saying? Or do you, or do you create sermons and text from the situation you're in? Do you look at the text and does it have anything to say whatsoever in what's happening? And I, I want to model that for you because, listen, our sermons aren't just to be biblical. They're to be relevant. We're not just to have truth, we're to have truth that makes a difference in how you handle life. And I don't, I don't think that you can say, let's go to the cross and think of the Lord's Supper and keep your life out of it. No, no, you don't keep your life, you bring your life to it. The cross, in order to change your life, it has to confront it. It has to be part of it, brought into it and made a difference. And so all of a sudden... I was going to talk, you know, I was going to talk about the crucifixion. We're getting to the crucifixion, and it hits me. I want to do a sermon on the, the physical pain and how Jesus died. But do you know the four gospel writers don't say much about the physical pain? In fact, we're in Matthew, and he says one word. One word. I want you to notice it in verse 36. And it says, Matthew 27, 36, it's one Greek word and three English words. And there they crucified him. They crucified him. That's one word. And that's all he says about the physical torture of Jesus. That's it. Now, if it's me, and I'm not inspired like Matthew was. You don't have to tell me that after the sermon. I already know that, right? I would have zoomed in on that physical suffering and painted you a picture that had you on your knees in sorrow. Kind of like the passion of the Christ. I want you to see what he suffered and I want you to feel it intensely and I want those emotions to flow through you. That's not what Matthew did. Matthew doesn't even tell you anything. He just says one word and assumes that you know what that is. But he spends an awful lot of time looking at the humiliation all these people, the, if he's making a movie, it's not looking at Jesus hardly at all. What he's doing is he's looking all around the cross at what the people are doing. And he's using 
a literary device. This is a book, this is an inspired piece of literature, but it is a piece of literature. And Matthew, by inspiration of scripture, inspiration of God, uses some rhetorical devices. And I'll tell you the one that's most striking today is irony. He uses irony in the story. You know what irony is? You read the newspaper. I'm not doing any advertising, I'm not hurting any advertising, but Adam's Pest Control does pest control for the church. Imagine you read in the Jonesboro Sun, Adam's Pest Control has to shut down because their office was, was consumed by termites. Now, what are you thinking about that? You want me to hire you to take care of the termites at my house, but you can't even keep them out of your office. You see the irony of this? Now, that didn't happen, so I don't, I don't want any false advertising or anything. I'm just saying it's ironic. And in this story, the irony drips from the pages. And it want, but Matthew wants you to get it, and he wants you to see it. And here's what irony is. This literary device where the writer expects the reader to catch the discrepancy between how things appear and the truth. The writer, as he's reading this, he knows a truth, but the events as they unfold just don't make sense according to the truth that he knows. The reader knows something that the characters in the story don't know. Let me use Job as an example. You got Job and all these horrible things are happening to him and chapters and chapters of him grappling with God and with himself and with his friends over what in the world's happening. All along, the reader knows full well. The reader is given insight in the first two chapters and the last one. We know what's happening, but Job doesn't. And it's a struggle. We're sitting there going, I wish God would drop me down in a time machine about chapter 30 so I can say to Job, let me tell you what's going on and make it easier. He doesn't get commentary, and neither do you. You don't get a verse. You don't get a prophet drop down in the middle of your life to explain how this all fits into the plan of God. You just have to trust. It's hard to do, isn't it? The irony of this passage, the ironies, there's more than one, are to drive home truth that just verses wouldn't do. God could come along and say to you, now remember, Jesus really is the king of kings, but he doesn't. He just plays it. He wants you to trust it as you read the story. If you're an unbeliever reading the sections we're going to read today, you're going to be going, well, what's, that's just a historical account. If you're a believer, you've got a quandary in you because the irony makes you sit and ponder it. Let me give you the first one. It was read just a moment ago. The first one is the scene before Pilate's soldiers. Pilate has sentenced Jesus. We know what he's going to get but before they got to prepare him for this crucifixion so he hands him over to the soldiers until everything's ready well the soldiers decide we're going to have fun with this you say you're a king well we're going to treat you like one we're going to treat you like one and here's what they do they stripped him of his clothes he's there naked in front of these men making fun of him and then they put this purple robe on him kingly royal colors we're going to dress you like a king and then and then we're going to give you the crown that you should have as a king. Only this crown is made of thorns and pierces his skin and draws blood, right? And then they said, you've got to have a scepter if you're a king. So they give him this stalk of wheat or some little wimpy little thing that holds, and it looks a little bit like a scepter. Here, you, you sit here in this throne and hold this scepter. Ha, ha, ha. And then they said, well, I'll tell you what, we've got to bow down. And they, sit there, they, they, they kneel down in front of him, and they go, hail, king of the Jews. It's a disgusting scene for those of us who know the truth. 
But for them, it's just a bunch of mockery and fun and jest. And then as they get back up off their knees, they, they put a little spit on him, which is the most humiliating thing of all. And they take the, the reed, whatever it was, it may have been something like bamboo, and they take it and they hit that crown on his head and drive it down further. And then they say, well, now it's time to go on. We're going to treat you like a king. Now, for a, anybody just reading this, okay, that's terrible, but people got treated that way. What do you know as a believer? He really is their king. How in the world can he let them treat him like this? This would be like walking up to Clark Kent and kicking him in the shins. Who's Clark Kent? But nobody knows it. The irony has us asking two questions. Why is this Man who is king of kings. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the Gentiles. He's king of all kings. He's the maker of the people doing this. He's raised up kingdoms and he's destroyed them. And he's got them in the palm of his hand. And he's letting his small C creation tear up the capital C creator. Why is he letting this happen? The irony is... He really is king. And here's why he's letting this happen. The place he's taking is not the taking of the Son of God. He's taking your place. If it were you getting what you really deserve, you couldn't do anything about it. You would deserve it. And he can't do anything about it because he deserves it because he's in your place. The irony. The other thing for irony is for the reader. What does this mean for us? What's this say about us? It says you can be a child of God and it really not look like it to anybody else. You can be a child of the sovereign God of the universe, loved dearly by him, purchased by him, a child of the king, and people not treat you like it. And you endure circumstances that don't seem like it. It seems like in our world, if you are a son of the governor or the president or even the mayor, you get special privileges. You get some kind of immunity from all that you do wrong, and you get these things that happen to you, and they kind of turn away from them and they say well you're a son of somebody important but when you're a son of God or a daughter of God you will still experience things that don't fit children of God who love God and God is their sovereign who can do anything for them still have miscarriages it doesn't fit my definition of what being the very chosen special child of the creator should look like, but it does. And it doesn't call into question who you are when you go through it. It doesn't mean that you're not loved, and it doesn't mean you don't have that title or that position. When you start thinking that, when you start thinking these things that happen somehow undermine my significance to God, look at the cross, look at this scene. Remember the irony of the Christian life is that it won't always appear, but you know the truth. You know the truth, and you've got to hang on to that truth despite all appearances. Be careful, church, how you interpret your life. Allow for the irony. Write these words on your life. 
sort of like in that rear view mirror, not the rear view mirror, the one outside your passenger side door. Events in life are not as they appear. What determines your identity is not your circumstances. It's who you are in Christ. Scene number two becomes one of the passers-by. Now, I threw this out for the early service, and I think you need it too. This is, this is how you make the word passerby plural. Passerbys is not the right word. I've seen that in the literature, and it's not right. It's passers-by, okay? No extra cost for that at all. We're not even going to pass the plate again. I'm just telling you, that's great news right there. That's great information. And by the way, if you have a sister-in-law and you have two of them, sisters-in-law. Don't say sister-in-laws. Sisters-in-law. But you should not have mothers-in-law. shouldn't have just one of those, one of those. Passers-by. These are the people walking on the road. And see, they like to do their capital punishment as a deterrent. They wanted to use capital punishment to be seen, to deter people from doing this, so they would put on the side of the road. And these people, these pilgrims, these people just walking along the road could look up and see these people, and the charge was written above them. The charge was written up there for everybody to see, and it would say, this person's a thief, this person's a liar, this person is a whatever. That way, if you're walking along the road and you say, ooh, that guy's got being treated terribly. What did he do? He stole. Oh, I'm never going to steal. I don't want that fate. It's a deterrent. So Jesus is there. I'm sure it's by a a well-worn path somewhere as people walk by. And as they walk by, some of them just go, wow. I want you to listen to what they say. Verses 39, just join me at verse 39. Going a little further. Whoops, I'm in the wrong chapter. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, kind of saying, you can hear him doing, shame on him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, sounds like Satan in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Now that sounds like a really logical thing. If you really are the son of God and you want us to believe it, come down from the cross. But here is the irony. He can't come down from the cross and still be son of God. He comes down off the cross. He's not doing God's will. He is no longer son of God. He's forfeiting the title. He can't please you and come off there and prove anything, but also earn the the title from the Father by obeying him. He can't do both. It's a catch-22. It's a strange thing, but... I liken it like this. I, Dr. Carlton's a good doctor. I didn't say that in the early service, but I'll say it here. He's a good doctor. He's one of our elders. I asked him the other day when he became a doctor. It's 1998 or something like that. He is the same guy today as he was in 1998, basically. I mean, he's got some experiences, but he's the same fellow, DNA and all that. He was the same one back in 1995, but he wasn't Dr. Carlton in 1995. He wasn't Dr. Carlton in 1996, and he wasn't Dr. Carlton in 1997. Same guy, same smart fella, and same compassionate guy, but he's not Dr. Carlton, though, because he hadn't done the things required to get that position. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus had to do some things 
to be fully, fully called the Son of God. And one of those was to die. Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to the earthly life was descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed, appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. When was Jesus fully vested in his appointment as son of God? At the resurrection. If he would have come off the cross and not died, he would have never been appointed son of God. He would not have completed God's requirement for him. He would have not have submitted to the will of God perfectly and been a son of God. He would have been collapsed everything after that. He isn't son of God until he rises from the dead and his job is finished and he's done everything God asked him to. That's why he says it is finished. He can't come off that cross. And still be the son of God. Scene number three. By the way, I would say about that, this is the same for you. You're not really a child of God unless you do the will of God. Sonship, you see, and this is something we know from our lives too. Sonship is not expressed in your amazing, dazzling, trouble-free, spectacular life. Sonship is expressed in obedience. You do what God asks you to. And sometimes that's not pretty. And sometimes that's not popular. And sometimes that pits you at odds with the world. But that's the one requirement for being a child of God as you do His will. Last scene, the religious leaders, we're going to go through this real quickly, and it just, basically, here's what they say, verses 41 to 43. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Interesting, isn't it? I want you to think about that. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They want him to come down and save himself, and we'll believe you if you do. He saved others, but he can't save himself. But here's the truth, and here's the irony. If he saves himself, he can't save you. It's a catch-22. If he saves himself, he can't save you. His death is required to save you. Second thing they say, he's king of Israel. Let him come down now and we'll believe in him. There's nothing to believe if he comes off the cross. These are very difficult things. These people are becoming unknown prophets. They're speaking out of ignorance, but they're saying truth in the opposite. It's a strange thing. If he comes down off that cross, the thing that saves you is a death, burial, and resurrection of your Savior. And if it doesn't happen, you're not saved at all. And finally, he trusts in God, so let God deliver him if he wants him. He said he was the Son of God. God will deliver him, but he can't deliver him in the way they want him to. Because if he does, he can't deliver us. Don't run by these ironic statements too fast without absorbing them because Jesus and God and the rest of Scripture propositionally say these things, but these powerful, ironic statements are to drive home deep in our hearts exactly this, that we as Christians must learn to trust what we know and not what we see. That's the irony. Jesus said a couple of these things himself as statements. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and 
forfeit his soul. How can you say, I win, I win in the world, but you lose, you lose with God. And, and that, it's, you got to choose one or the other. You have to make that choice. Irony forces you to make it. Second, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. In other words, to be successful in the world is a different standard than being successful in the kingdom of God. And we can, we can sit here and say, I'm going to believe if this, if this, if this. All these people coming by at the foot of the cross said, if you'll do this, we'll believe. But he can't do that. It's logically impossible. This extends to us in so many ways. I think about evangelism. I want to reach the world, and so do you. Valley View wants to reach the world and find people and bring them in. We do, but there are certain things you cannot do in order to bring people in. You cannot change the plan of God. Even if more people would come, you cannot change the plan of God. We be winning you to a message, but that message would not be the gospel that saves. We cannot change that. And Jesus cannot change the plan of God that requires his death. And so if all these people at the cross said, you know what, we believe in you, if you'll miraculously deliver yourself, it would go against the clear plan of God. Another shameless bit of advertising for January, and we're talking about gender stuff in January. There's a whole lot in our world that is about gender war. We're fighting each other. Men and women are pitted against each other. Be very careful with these wars. They're kind of ridiculous. But we got people out in the world saying to the church, you know, we're catching up. We're evolving into more sophisticated human beings. And, and we see that the church often is not. You're not, willing, you're not willing to bend to this. You're not willing to accommodate these gender Battles, and I'm not just talking about in worship, I'm talking about in our culture. And, if, and, and they're coming to us demanding, and some, some are, are saying, okay, we're going to accommodate as much as we can. And, and, and they, start, they start changing the position they have on this. Some of that's okay. But you've got to be very careful about this, because if the world says to us, we're not going to come, and we're not going to listen to your message, we're not going to be part of you, we're not even going to listen to you until you start changing some of this, it sounds an awful lot like the mockers at the foot of the cross. And we can, we're like Jesus. I cannot change this. The elders here have a great role in this church, but they do not determine doctrine. They do not determine doctrine. That's above their pay grade. They do not decide our beliefs. And they don't have the freedom to supplement they don't have the freedom to accommodate they don't have the, the, the freedom to compromise and if you go and you say well can we change this they're going to go look at the word and the word won't let us change it and it hasn't changed in 2,000 years we're raising a generation of consumers we determine what store we go to by what they offer me and we are translating that to our churches I'm deciding where I go by who accommodates me and satisfies me. You are not to be a consumer. You are to be a disciple. And that's a different thing. And we don't have the freedom. Valley View is not producing more consumers. We are to produce disciples. And if that means having fewer people available, well, then you've got to do that. Jesus just simply could not please these people because he had to do the will of God instead of what they wanted. I'm going to leave you with one verse here from Hebrews chapter 5 that I just find interesting. And I, I want you to, to be ready to answer some questions from it for me. 
Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. I'm going to read it from here. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Who is that? I'm just making sure you're with me. Who is that? God is described as the one who could save him from death. He prayed to the one who could save him from death. One who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He was willing to do whatever the one who could save him from death asked him to do. He never asked God to change his mind. He asked him to reveal his will and help him yield to it. He prayed to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And he goes on to say, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He prayed to a God who could save him from death, but did that God save him from death? He prayed to a God who sometimes told him no. And it doesn't make sense why you would tell your sinless son no. But God sometimes did, and Jesus the son said, okay, yes, sir. And he learned, this perfect sinless one learned obedience from what he suffered. Suffering is when the will of God is pitted against your own. And there he is on the cross. What we know is this. We know he didn't want to do it. And he hears at the foot of the cross people who are expressing his own heart's desire. Don't do it. Don't do it. Come down from there. Get yourself off here. We'll believe if you just rescue yourself. And he hears his heart's desire coming from other people. So much of our sin is committed because we hang around people who reinforce our sinful desires. We hang around people who are like a, a sounding board. What I really want is to do my own thing. And you get, you get your friends around. I want to divorce my, 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 my husband and all these girlfriends get around. Yeah, get rid of him, get rid of him. And you're listening to voices that reinforce your own sinful desire. And there's Jesus. That's his desire. And he hears it all around him. How tempting would it have been? All this that expresses his desire and hears God's will and God's will wins and he learned obedience from what he suffered. Have you learned that kind of obedience? That's what God's calling you to. Discipleship. The irony is you are a child of God. You are king of the sovereign ruler of the universe. But it won't always look that way and you won't understand why. And it will cause you to go, well, I wonder if I really am. I wonder if he loves me. There are people who are saying, I'm looking for that right guy in my life and I'm having to wait forever. And how long am I going to have to wait? And what would I, I'm, I'm waiting for this child. How long am I going to have to wait for this to happen? How long? And there are people who have to go undergo some great suffering. Why should I have to do this when my creator is my Lord? It's the irony. And you're learning obedience from what you suffer. This time of season, we focus on one irony, that little helpless baby born in such humble circumstances was the one who then grew up and saved us from our sin and became king of kings and lord of lords. Is that hard to believe looking down at that manger? Yes. But is that true? Yes. Yes. 
Here's the lesson in one sentence. Trust the truth you know, not what appears to be so. Trust the truth you know, not what appears to be so. That's the irony of life. And one of the reasons we gather here, according to Hebrews chapter 10, we draw near to God and we spur one another on, but there's this other phrase that says, we hold on to our confession. Because we live in a world where what we believe and express here on Sunday morning looks awfully out of kilter with what we see during the week. There's so many things that happen to us and so many things that we see that don't make sense. There's just confusion and you think, God is sovereign over this world? Look at this. Yes, I know. And you get together on Sunday and I remind you and you remind me and we remind each other and we hold on to our confession for a little longer. And listen, if you give up meeting, you will give up the confession because your eyes will overrule your brain and the irony will defeat you. Don't give it up. Trust what you know not what appears to be so. If there's anyone who needs to respond this morning, trust what you know, and God tells us, tells us to repent of our sins and be immersed in the waters of baptism, you rise to walk a new life. It sounds strange and it looks strange, but it's the truth. It's what we believe, and if there's anyone subject to that invitation this morning, make it known as we stand and as we sing. What can 